Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. A teach. You all know the rules and regulations to govern this facility. You know what to do. You need to act like you're true to this and you ain't new to this. You need to sign in. Hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. Hit that five-star finger discount button. And any other button you see, if you see it, hit it. Someone in the comment section yesterday asked, what does a 10 hurt mean? I'm gonna put it to you like this. It means the same thing your mama meant when she used to tell you, look out! And you would say, huh? It means you need to pay attention. It means you need to recognize that you're in the presence of greatness because knowledge is being dropped. Words of wisdom are being shed from up above. And all of this is being bestowed upon you by none other than his humble and faithful servant, your thrill sergeant, Uncle Jimmy. And having said that, let's repeat the creed. We should exist in a state of man glorious as we are protected by the red, the white, and the blue. All right, thank you very much. Now in NFL news, some of you got upset and got your skivvies in a bunch, cause Uncle Jimmy, you heard me say that I thought it was blasphemous that the Dallas Cowboys was referred to as America's team. Okay, I told you that America, that the Kansas City Chiefs was America's team. And I'm telling all of you right now that we're about to find out. We're about to find out the real deal. See, Dak Prescott, he's too dark. He can't pass like Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> You dig it? You get what I'm trying to say? He can't do it. Listen here. America's new sweetheart. Hey, ask Jake from State Farm. Every time he turn around, he trying to get with Patrick. Okay? Listen here. He knows a good thing when he see it, just like y'all do. Speaking of good things, we also got a good thing coming up. We got a good game coming up. We got the Green Bay Packers versus the Minnesota Vikings. It's a game that I like to call the battle of the unvaxxed quarterbacks. See, I think we should put a little wager on this game. I think we should say something like, the losing quarterback gotta get the vaccine. You know, see, personally, I'm gonna tell you something. Say what you want to. Y'all think that it would easily be Aaron Rodgers, but I'm gonna tell you something. Kirk Cousins is a lot like Jason. You know, he ain't pretty, but doggone it, he gets the job done. Okay? Now, Thank you for come watching the show. It's Wednesday, you know what's happening. Hey, some of you call it hump day, cause you're heathens, back in the world. I called it way back Wednesday, but we here fearless. You know what we call it, we call it Tennessee Harmony. And I think it's very Afro-quo that our guest today, his first name is Christian. And that means his name is Christian Flores to be exact. 
I like to call him the Russian Rico Suave. This guy was the Justin Timberlake of Russia before it was fashionable. He's a preacher now, so I think we could possibly say that he's now the Kirk Franklin of Russia. Some of the people say, you know, he and Jason are going to discuss his life growing up in the communist country. You know, by the way, before I forget, let me tell you all something. You guys know that the price of turkey is going through the roof. But one thing is for sure, you can listen to this turkey right here for free. This guy right here is a legend in his own mind. And he's also a legend at all the all-you-can-eat buffets all over Nashville, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Kansas City, Indianapolis, and way too many more places to it, even name. Okay? And let me also say this. Jason has never served in the military. But based on all of his work that he's done here at Fearless and all of the work that he's done for his country, including all of the undercover work that he's done at nightclubs all over America, our military has agreed to give him a full 21 wing salute when he passes. So I'm here to tell y'all all again, release the dubs, release the sounds, and get ready for the freaking Catalina wine spritzer himself. The big boss, Jason Whitlock, you know. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Happy Wednesday. Great job, Uncle Jimmy. Uh, it's hump day. And it's, you know what hump days are around here. It's Tennessee Harmony. And I could not be more excited about this next interview. Uh, Pastor Walker and Pastor Harrington will not be here today. Uh, we have a special guest minister that's going to be joining us from Austin, Texas. And he's perfectly appropriate uh, for today and important for today as we, as I, I want to go bigger picture. And, and I, I want to try to use uh, our guest today, uh, Christian Ray Flores. He's a minister in Austin, Texas. Uh, he was born in Moscow, uh, Russia. And I, I, he's lived a very fascinating life. And I think he can help some of our audience and some of us understand why some of us are very concerned about what's going on here in America and why we think there's the threat of communism, Marxism, socialism, invading American culture. And so I think it was two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Christian and I, uh, we had dinner at Pastor Harrington's house, I believe two weeks ago, and I listened to his story and his background, and I, I think he's lived in Chile, he's lived in Russia, he's lived in Mozambique. Uh, he's lived in at least three countries that were communist run at some point. And, and he sees a lot of scary warning signs going on here in America about the path that we're headed on, and so, I think with 
us sitting around the past couple of days waiting in anticipation of the Cal Rittenhouse trial, I, I think we have an opportunity uh, today with this conversation with Christian Ray uh, to uh, get a bigger, broader understanding of why many of us are scared about the direction this country is going in and how, you know, the Rittenhouse, what's going on with Kyle Rittenhouse and this authoritarian uh, bullying of American citizens and the, the mistreatment of certain American citizens, basically for their political point of view, why it's so scary for many of us. Uh, but but I, I haven't even done justice to uh, Christian's life or a description of his life. At one time, he's a major rock star in the Soviet Union. Now he's a major minister in Austin, Texas. Uh, he leads a church called The Tribe. Uh, without further ado, uh, Christian Ray. And, and I, Christian, you got to help. Should I call you Christian Flores, Christian Ray? <laughs> Should I call you uh, uh, Justin Bieber, the older Justin Bieber? I mean, <laughs> Mark, I listened to our generation, by the way. Oh, did you? Uh, oh, yeah, This man. morning. Yeah, yeah, well, I did. Well, and first I was, of all, I was, thanks. I was kind of impressed. Thanks, thanks for coming, uh, having me. I just loved your whoop in the beginning. That's fantastic. And uh, <laughs> well, first of all, yeah, Christian, Christian Ray. Uh, that's probably sort of the two names that people um, use normally. Uh, but um, it's funny because you called me pastor, and no one calls me pastor. And I think the reason for that is because I have this sort of professional ADD. Because I do, obviously, I planted a church here in Austin, here in Austin called Tribe. But I've, you know, I do music. I own. I'm an investor. I'm an uh, entrepreneur. So I run a company. We build other companies. So it's confusing to me when people call me pastor. I go, oh man, I don't, I don't know. And now I need to. I need to watch my language or something, you know, uh, but uh, but thank, thanks for asking. I appreciate it. I, I probably left off your most uh, significant accomplishment, but the song Our Generation, and I think we can play a little taste of it here, actually helped Boris Yeltsin win election uh, in, in, in Russia and, and played a role in ending communism? Am I, am I giving the song and you too much credit? Okay, yes, you are, but let me give you some context. <laughs> so what happened is, the last time the Communist Party had a real shot at coming back to power was in 1996. Uh, they were planning a huge comeback. They were actually leading in the polls and the Democratic, uh, essentially opposition leader was Boris Yeltsin. Now, they were leading in the polls and uh, they, they had a sort of a rock the vote campaign at the time going because they wanted the youth to chime in, the youth to, to really tip, tip, the, tip the scale towards democracy and a new future. And I just happened to, I, just, I was one of the artists who was on this campaign and I just happened to have a song at the time that was a number one hit called Our Generation. And it was very anthemy. It was very much about the pulse of, of the moment of new things coming in, old things going away. So it was very, almost like a protest song. It was, you know, it had teeth um, and it was, everywhere so it was every club every disco tv radio magazines it was everywhere so they used that song a lot in in commercials in tv spots and then of course i was 
campaigning. I was on TV. I was giving interviews. We were going on tours with a bunch of other artists. Um, and it was fantastic. It was very exciting for me. And I was just sort of putting my career on the line at the time. Because, you know, if you're back a candidate here in America, your guy loses, you're a little discouraged, but you don't lose your career. Our best case scenario was to lose a career. Worst case scenario was if the communists came back, you can only imagine, right? Worst things could happen. But at the time, you feel you feel invincible, you feel idealistic, and we just went for it. I'm just grateful that uh, democracy won at the time. All right, so... Christian, I'm not going to give away his age, but he's much older now. Uh, so yes, here's Christian, a little bit younger, uh, rocking out and helping Boris Yeltsin uh, win election in Russia. Let's play a little 30-second soundbite. <laughs> so, Christian, give us, I just had one of our uh, producers say, hey, kind of sounds like Michael Jackson. Uh, what sound were you guys going for? To me, it sounded more in sync, uh, boy bandish. Is, is that kind of what you guys were? Yeah, it was basically a mix of things, absolutely. And and one of the th one of the reasons why I was just lucky enough to be to gain a, a huge amount of success early on is that the, when the Iron Curtain fell down, there's this flood of new Western-sounded music that came into the country. Um, so the the demand was there, and people really wanted it, but no one knew how to do it well and i did because i just grew up all over the world so i was just better informed better prepared i guess and at the time i was probably the only guy who was doing hip-hop and r&b pop stuff so my influences were michael jackson prince terence Trent darby bobby brown you know all of the r&b of the 90s which i think was the golden age of r&b so even the beat that you hear there it, that's new jack swing which is a very specific beat that you you know, there was, you know, Blackstreet uh, invented and, you know, uh, so so it was a very unusual feel and rhythm and energy that came uh, through my music into the into the ecosystem. Let's put it that way. All right. So let's go back a little bit, because, again, I got to hear all this stuff two weeks ago when uh, we had dinner with some other ministers. Uh, and, and just a fascinating backstory, your life. And then I want to transition how it applies to what we're seeing here in America and why some of us are so concerned about the direction of this country. But I, I'll say this. You were born in Moscow, Russia. You tell the story from there. So I was born in Moscow, Russia. My dad is Chilean. My mom is Russian. They were both communists. And they, they met a student. My dad was an engineering student. My mom was um, uh, studying uh, as to be a, a teacher of, of the French language, uh, in the, a linguist, essentially. And um, they got married. I was born, and we immediately left uh, for Chile. I was six months old or something like that. At the time, literally around that time, the first democratically elected socialist president, I think in the world, was, was about to be elected 
in Chile. His name was Salvador Allende. He was very, very popular. And uh, what happened afterwards is that he um, he got elected, and there was a military coup to overthrow him. So we were in the middle of that military coup because my dad was a communist. He was a, a supporter, obviously, of that, of that president. So my dad spent some, you know, a few months in a concentration camp. There was thousands of people arrested, disappeared, tortured, killed. You know, it was it was a mess. So m one of my first. Um, childhood memories was being in a refugee camp after they were, he was released there was a, we were the lucky ones right if, if you think about the Kabul airport scenes that we just saw recently we were the ones who were, who were on the inside of the airport at least because we could get out right so we were in a UN protected by the UN refugee camp for a few months before we got asylum in Germany. So that was sort of the beginning of my childhood, if you can imagine. Uh, it's actually my first childhood memories were from that that place. I was like five years old. We uh, moved to Germany for a while, back to the Soviet Union. My mom was sort of shell-shocked. She wanted to go back home. And then we ended up in, in Africa, in Mozambique. Now, Mozambique was a also this was the era when a lot of the African countries got their independence. So essentially, most of them leaned either towards uh, the West or or the socialist bloc. So Mozambique happened to be a Marxist-run country. So I was there for seven years. I saw the whole thing develop. My you know my parents were key people in reestablishing industries and things like that, uh, along with a, a bunch of other expat specialists because they just didn't have enough professionals there at the time. So I love that country, but it went through a lot, I'll tell you that. So we spent seven year, years in Mozambique, my, and after my parents divorced, my mom wanted to go back to the Soviet Union, so I ended up in the Soviet Union with my mom and my sister in a you know, one bedroom ha apartment, little apartment in Moscow. Uh, and it was just such culture shock. It's like whiplash, right, from from environments and how you live there. So I finished school in, in, in Russia. I got a master's degree in economics. And the funny thing about that is that I studied Karl Marx as an economist. And halfway through, sort of maybe two thirds through into my studies, the professors were st started teaching us market economics, free markets, uh, economics. You know, all, all of the theorists, all of the, all of the leaders in 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 that in that space. And I graduated with a master's degree in economics the very year where the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991. So that's sort of the quick backstory. And then I went, I was sort of musically inclined from my childhood, so I did that in parallel. I was a dancer, I was a break dancer, I sang, I was the soloist everywhere. So I was creative, a creative guy studying economics, which weird mix, but it's actually served me really well in my career because I was able to become not only a, a, a big star in Russia, but I produced other bands and and, you know, we were commercially very successful, not just artistically. And so you grow up with these two communist parents. What influence did they have on your worldview? Uh, and, and how did you transition? Obviously, studying economics probably played a role in your transition, but you were probably raised to be a communist, a Marxist, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it was. I was very. I grew up in a very ideologically charged family, and on top of that, it's not just ideas, right? For us, this was 
a fight against oppression because, you know, my parents were imprisoned for their ideas. They, they weren't even politicians, you know. They're not terrorists. They're not politicians. But they were imprisoned. Many of the of their friends were tortured and killed and imprisoned, so went through the same ordeal. So it, the contrast of the story was very much not theoretical, right? It, it was experiential. It was, wow, there's a lot of evil out there. So it was a very politically charged um, family. We were very idealistic. So there's some good things in that. But if you to, to, to answer your question about what helped me transition, and what helped me transition was reality. It was experiencing the fruit of that ideology translated into society, how people interact with each other, how culture develops, how economics develop, um, and how much misery it brought, how much mediocrity it brought, how much human, uh, the worst in, hu in the human condition was sort of bubbling up because of you know of this ideology. So experientially, I was not a fan. I saw how much misery it, it brought. Now, once you grow up, you start reading things like the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn, and you realize that much of the socialist dream was built on slave labor and oppression uh, and, and fear. Um, you, you go to the store and you see not a lot of food, right? So you're not hungry, but it's scarcity and it's terrible. And it doesn't produce flourishing. So between experientially knowing that in literally three different countries, right? Because Chile was experimenting with that without socialist president. That didn't last long. And actually, the real income of, of the population went down considerably once he took over. Then he was overthrown, and things changed. In, in Africa, same thing. There was a Marxist uh, country, and there was a lot of misery there. And in the Soviet Union, you lived in this sort of grayscale world of mediocrity you know they had the state had a lot of accomplishments like sending people to the moon and they build machines but the the average human being was not flourishing there so between that and then studying the theory behind those things uh, that really definitely solidified my my switch to being not only uh, uh, not liking communists but being against communism because i see a lot of it has just evil in it and i can unpack that so, later if you'd like as a young person, are you debating with your parents or when you get into your 20s and 30s, are you debating with your parents or, or did your and maybe your parents are still alive? Did they remain communist? Did did you guys have spirited debates about communism? We did. We did somewhat. Well, my dad was not with us because my parents got divorced, um, unfortunately, but we did debate it uh, some. And uh, I still I still go back and forth with with my dad. I think he's sort of left left leaning in in the sense of he, I don't think he's not a, a communist per se. He's more of a socialist now. Uh, but you know I you know I just recently said, hey, can you please do me a favor, Dad? Can you please le read um, a Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn? If you really want to form your ideas around around this, at least check out the fruit of it. I mean, it's a he's a Nobel Prize winner. This is a classic. If you want to understand the difference between systems, uh, so he's I think he's he's checking into that, right? <laughs> so uh, so we but but we have, we have very friendly debates, especially with my dad. We we love discussing stuff like that with my dad. Your mom? My mom. Not so you know, much. It was, 
it was easier with my mom because she lived there. He was, I think my dad was more of an idealist and he lived in the Soviet Union a little bit, but he doesn't, he was not immersed in it for decades, right? He studied there. So a lot of it is youth memories married to sort of ideas that make sense because let's face it, Marxism, socialism is a very appealing set of ideas, right? It's the solution that messes it up. So with my mom, because she lived there for longer and she saw some of the terrible things that happened. And also she became a Christian. Uh, I became a Christian in 95 and that helped me see that, I mean, the communists, they, they, they it's in the foundational philosophy that uh, religion, what they call, is opium for the opium for the people to control the masses. So they re- forcibly removed faith, and more importantly, not just the religious aspects of faith, but they forcibly removed um, the idea of God. I mean, and what, what, by forcefully, I mean thousands and thousands of priests executed, imprisoned, sent to gulags, tens of thousands of churches demolished you know, blown up. Um, it is forcible, right? So it was just, it was literally, try, they were trying to exterminate this very dimension of the human being, which tells us that we are created in the image of God. We're more than just, you know, a biological being, we're a spiritual being. Now, if you remove that you're a spiritual being from your worldview, that shapes you in ways that are, that end up, uh, producing some of the fruit that we see in, in, in Marxist uh, uh, countries. You know, I have, I struggle a lot of times to explain or convince or reach friends of mine trying to say like, hey man, this socialism is the gateway drug to communism. Communism and Marxism all hostile towards religion. I, I really struggle to get a lot of my friends or family to understand just how evil Marxism and communism are. That's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today because you've actually lived the experience. You're a Christian, you've got a successful church here in Austin, Texas. So if you could unpack a personal favor for me, Absolutely. Talk to my family, friends, our audience, just try to help them understand why communism and Marxism are so dangerous. Absolutely. It will be my pleasure um, because I do think it's it's an evil ideology that leads to evil fruit, for lack of a better word. So let me unpack this to you. And then what I'll do is I'll, I'll sort of give you some bullet points of the ideology. And then I'll see if we'll see if we can see that see some of the elements of that in the current narratives that we hear all around us. Okay, so here we go. Number one, what Marx saw was a real problem. He was a post-industrial England. He lived in England for a while when he a lot of his writing was was in in England, and what he saw is this industrial growth and a lot of wealth being created and a lot of people displaced from the countryside to work in factories. Uh, we're about we're about to go into Christmas season, right? Here's an interesting fact: Karl Marx uh, wrote, uh, the, you know, his grand uh, 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 writing book called Capital. Um, as this, at the same time as Charles Dickens wrote the Christmas Carol, they were writing at the same time. 
about the same thing in the same city. Think about that. And what Marx did, he saw the problem. They saw the same problem. The problem was there. But what Marx did, he saw it as a material problem. And what Charles Dickens saw, if you if you remember the tale, obviously it's he's a storyteller. It was a spiritual problem. There was ghosts visiting this this guy, right? Uh, there was you know. Tiny Tim was the oppressed class, and uh, Ebenezer Scrooge was the this this greedy guy, right? So that's what they saw. They saw the same thing. So he tells the story, but the Dickens story is a spiritual story, where Ebenezer Scrooge gets transformed, actually through the spiritual realm, if you think about it, right? And he's changed. Now Karl Marx, he saw it differently. What he saw was. He saw that there's a class struggle, right? So at the time, it was the proletariat, which is the working class, and the bourgeoisie, which is the people in charge, let's put it that way, in broad strokes. And what he saw is that it was a a binary zero-sum game, which basically means this class, for it to do better, let's say the proletariat, this class, the bourgeoisie, has to lose. So it's, he saw everything through this class struggle. He put a pin in that, and we'll come back to it in the American experience. Number two, the, tr- the moral truth of how objectively to see the world is assigned to this enlightened elite. And of course, Karl Marx represented the enlightened elite, plus the people he gathered around him. So there's people sort of speaking into this. And they assign to themselves this objective truth. We see the world as it is, and we see the problems that they are, and we have the solution. Okay, number three. And also, that excludes religion immediately. So truth is not in faith. It doesn't have this holistic view of the world of of the human being, for example, in our, in, as Christians, we believe human beings were created in the image, were image bearers of, bearers of God, of a loving God who created everything, and it informs the way we see the world, the way we act. We are subject to the authority, let's say, of Scripture, of God. We follow authority. Now, what Marx wanted to do is he is the authority, and the people that agree to him are the authority. They're the, the enlightened elite. Does that sound familiar? Does that resonate? We'll come back to it in a second. But I've been in that as well. And then he he offered a solution. And the solution is a forceful redistribution of wealth by the state. Is okay, if these people have too much, these people have too little. We need to give from the take from this people, it's this broad blob of a class. They are the enemy, the evil. The evil are a group of people. And these are the people that are suffering, that are oppressed. So what we need to do is literally physically, mechanically take from these people and give to these people. It's a forceful redistribution of, of, of the means of production, the distribution of wealth. Um, that is the solution. So that's the quick thing, right? Class struggle, zero-sum game. The moral truth is in the people, the enlightened people that sort of lead this this revolution, this this ideology, and the solution is a forceful redistribution of faith, uh, of uh, of uh, of wealth rather. Now, it also requires an, a dismantling of institutions. So, if we want to do this, this is the solution. We need to dismantle what supports this evil system that created this problem that we we see. Um, 
And it also basically means that in order to build this, this utopian future that we just created as the enlightened elite, and as, as we see the problem being solved, we need to destroy, right? We need to dismantle. We need to tear down. And what happens is you remove authority and truth from objective truth and you don't debate it and you give it to a, some sort of elite that supposedly has, then you don't have this collective wisdom being discussed, right? If you want to dismantle institutions, then what you're going to do is you're going to limit freedom of choice. You're going to limit private property or eliminate it altogether, which which is what the Russians did. You will adopt a a system of command and control because that's the only way to get to this utopia. And as the outcome, the state becomes this enlightened elite is elevated, right? The individual is diminished inevitably. So that's where this tree comes from. And in how you implement it, it could be extreme communism, you know, like North Korea, that's the extreme. But everything else in that, in that spectrum comes from the same root. And that's why I think we need to explain to people this is how it works, right? So if people are a means to a utopian end, right, they're just raw material. The individual is diminished. The sanctity of life is diminished and non, or non-existent. Entrepreneurship organically and naturally dies or fades or is diminished. Human flourishing diminishes. Mediocrity flourishes. Um, violence flourishes. Forceful methods flourish. And the outcome is this profound human, economic, spiritual decline of society. It's a moral, spiritual, and economic degradation. Degradation. And what starts bubbling up is violence, mediocrity, stagnation that leads to more violence, more mediocrity, more stagnation. Is that a, does that work for you? I love it. I've been writing notes, and so I just want to throw in a couple of thoughts that I think help buttress your point. I, I'm hoping this is what you wanted me to do, but that one of the last things you talked about was the sanctity of life being diminished. And the first mm -hmm. thing I thought of was like, that's why abortion is a core value for the left, is, is like life has been so diminished that we think protecting abortion all the way up until the day before delivery or the delay of delivery is vitally important. And, and the laws that were passed in Texas, they were saying trying to restrict abortion to just the first six weeks, I believe, or maybe it's nine weeks, I can't remember. Uh, 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 that's the only time you can have. They're seen as so outrageous and oh my God, we're taking away rights from women and it's because we've devalued the, the sanctity of life. Uh, when you mentioned the uh, enlightened elite, obviously uh, the media is a part of this enlightened elite, or they certainly are the foot soldiers for the enlightened elite, who are, to me, the major corporations and globalist corporations who give the media their marching orders. But, but I also think about, you know, because Das Capital comes out in 1867, and, and, and I, its influence over the thinking of, 
Americans. I, I think of W.E.B. Du Bois, who's very celebrated here and throughout this talented 10th theory to African-Americans at that time in the early 1900s. And like there was this elite group of black people that were gonna be responsible for everybody else. And they came from these families and they got into this college. And, and I've tried to tell people like, hey man, he's not talking, I'm not part of the talented 10th. You know, I, I, again, that's a little elite group of special black people that white liberals, in my view, get to say who they are. But, you know, my dad didn't graduate from high school. My mother was a factory worker. I grew up poor. I was not part of any talented 10th enlightened elite. I, you know, graduated high school, I think, with a 2.8 GPA. I graduated college with a 2.3. No one had big expectations for me. It's this American system of, of you know, hard work and common sense can allow someone from my background to ascend all the way up, but in, in, in uh, you know, communist-run countries, you don't have stories like mine. Uh, then when you talk about dismantle, destroy, and tear down, I, I, I've said it forever that the easiest thing to do is to tear down. What takes mm -hmm. hard work is building up. And Absolutely. we've so, we have valued the people who can who want to dismantle and tear down everything without requiring them to say, well, hold on, what are you going to build in its place? I, I get mm -hmm. you're tearing down these statues, you're tearing down these institutions, but what are you going to put in its place? And so with statues, they said, you know, we'll put George Floyd. You know, mm -hmm. you can no longer honor these, but George Floyd, that, that's your new statue, that's your new symbol, icon, whatever. And I'm like, is this better? Is this really building us up? Uh, and then, you know, one of the most powerful things I think you said that I, I just want to, <laughs> you talked about, we're basically going away from collective wisdom because we've handed wisdom basically over to this enlightened elite. And there's no greater collection of wisdom than what's found in the Bible. That's thousands of years of collected wisdom in the Bible. And I'm trying to explain to people like, hey man, you're turning this over to, I don't want to sing, sing, single anybody out, but Joy Reid or Don Lemon or Rachel Maddow or, or what, you think those people are better than Paul? You think they're better than the people that helped write this Bible that has stood the test of time for thousands of years? These people were born last week. Mm -hmm. And, Absolutely, and, and yeah. somehow they're smarter than, than the collective wisdom of the Bible. So I, I just, anyway, I wanted to throw those points in and, and yeah, let you uh, continue to explain. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and I think you're right. And I think, let me, let me maybe frame it a little bit the way I see it. So, first of all, I prefer to not, um, to not sort of work in, in paradigms of the left and the right. Now, absolutely, there, there are patterns 
and the left and patterns at the right that go into a certain direction, lean in a certain direction, that's actually true. But what I prefer to do, which I think it's a, it's a, it's a much more convincing thing, is to deal with this is truth and this is why it's truth and that's why it's convincing. So if you assign yourself to the left and you're convinced of it, great. If you're assigning yourself to the right, that's totally fine. That's one thing. So I would prefer to go, let's just deal with truth and not, not who you are, who you voted for, right? What is best for human flourishing? The second thing is that there's this, there's this tension, right, of, well, we don't want to let, you can't legislate holiness. You can't legislate morality. It just doesn't work. You can try, but you can't, right? So that, that whole abortion debate, to me, is there's degrees of degrees of, of precision because you know we can't make people believe that that a baby is is God's child more than than the baby is our child, right? Or you know, I used to think it's just a fetus. And I, two women had abortions because of me, before I was a Christian, obviously. And it broke my heart, and it still does. When I realized, when, when through understanding truth, you realize this is what this is. We're not just blobs of meat. We're not biological beings. We're spiritual beings. We have a creator, and we're co-creators with God. So it, that kind of consciousness and cultural awareness, I think, needs to rise from the inside out and not be just mere, mere legislation that sort of makes people believe. We're not a, we're not a, you know, we're not a church-dominated state. That's just really never worked out very well for us, you know? So I'd rather just go, okay, let's make an argument for what is good for human flourishing. So having said that and framed it that way, uh, let me ask you a few questions based on the, the things that I ex explained about the ideology, how this might resonate in the current narrative. First of all, remember how Marx saw the problem and Charles Dickens saw the problem and they saw, you know, poor people and rich people, and they saw greed and oppression? But then Marx basically said, okay, the problem is that everything in this world is, is based on class warfare, class struggle, which basically is a zero-sum game. And this large group of people is the enemy of this other large group of people. And for these people to do better, these people need to be uh, destroyed. And it's a zero-sum game. Why is that an important thing to understand? It's because that mentality, that binary zero-sum game mentality, it's very easily translatable. You can transplant that. You can pick it up from factory workers and factory owners to race, right? Zero-sum game. For, for African-Americans to, to win, white people need to be brought down a notch. Or whatever version of that, it's international. I mean, that dilemma is as, as old as humanity. You can go to any continent, any country in the world, and there's racial tensions. But if you treat it through that lens of its binary, in the, it's a zero-sum game, you can translate into race, you can translate into gender, you can translate into socioeconomic realms, poor and the rich. The rich get the richer, the, the poor get poorer. We understand that. But if you treat the problem just like that, you won't be able to arrive to a solution. So it resonates, it transplants. It's, it's like a virus that mutates, right? And, and, and people start propagating that because it's a simplistic 
an untrue statement, right? Number two. So this is how Marx saw it. This is how it plays out in our society right now. The work woke moral authority, right? So the authority is not above us. We don't all see that there's truth, and we need to to sort of conform ourselves to the truth, explore the truth, um, deal uh, deal with the tension of truth versus our opinion in our uh, in our sort of lens. But the work, the authority is a enlightened elite. How does that play out? As you said, identity politics, somebody decides that there's such a thing and that's how you do it. Cancer culture, cultural censorship, right? There's somebody who knows better, right? <laughs> and there is no authority. And that somebody takes upon themselves the, the being the arbiter of truth and morality and what is right and what is wrong. So it, it translates directly into modern, modern America, that one flawed concept in Marxism. Here's another one, redistribution of, 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 of the means of production and wealth and dismantling of institutions. How does that work out? Slogans like um, dismantle the patriarchy, defund the police. Um, even, for example, Christianity, right? It's an institution. Why is it that it's not culturally acceptable to criticize a, a faith, like let's say Buddhists, right? You start saying something about Buddhism that is, uh, people go, why are, you do, why are you doing this? But it's perfectly acceptable. Go at it if you want to criticize Christianity. Why? Because it's perceived as an institution, and institutions need to be dismantled. So all of these things mutate, and then they literally make their way directly into the cultural conversation of America. And you see, for example, the solution of redistribution of wealth, for example, taxation, right? That's, a, that's, an, that's an economic way to do it. You, you take from these, you give to these. And, and who is the arbiter of who to take from and who to give to? The enlightened elite, bigger government, right? Um, uh, slogans like equity, right? Um, what, but you're, what they're saying is not equal opportunity, it's equal outcome. When people, slogans like diversity, it's not, let's embrace the diversity of who we are, and that makes all of us better and more beautiful in the collective wisdom, in the collective culture, all of that stuff. But what it is, what it's actually meant is forced quotas based not on merit, but on some literally uh, uh, racial uh, trace uh, or color of your skin, which has nothing to do with what you're trying to do, right? So all of those things are inclusion, right? So inclusion is all of those things are are sort of constructs that are meant to be forceful changes. It, it inclu it's not just obviously it's not just physical violence, but it's verbal violence, cultural violence, right? Uh, it's economic violence in some senses. All of that grows from this uh, fundamental idea that an enlightened elite sees the problem and they can solve it, and it's a command and control way to solve it. So it just propagates across our culture, and the only way to imp the the only way to implement those solutions is state seizing power. Seizing power becomes an obsession. And if you, I'm telling you from my experience, 
power is an obsession of the Communist Party. If you go to China right now, right, it's a state capitalist country, and you can see that the DNA has informed so much how they operate that power just they, they just want it and they they protect it and they centralize it and they they want the economic power but they want the consent command and control power so it just it informs the dna of how a country is run it informs the culture and i'm telling you as a as some as an immigrant here in the united states i myself grew up poor i've seen ration cards i've seen um, all kinds of things. I was in a refugee camp when I was five years old, right? There is no way I could have achieved the things that I can achieve here as, a, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, as a business guy, even as a, as, a, as a Christian leader, if it wasn't for this climate, this beautiful cultural DNA that allows for these freedoms in this country, right? So I'll, I can speak, I, I'm confident that I can speak for the majority of uh, immigrants when they see this stuff going on, we get, we get, I mean, we get upset, we get mad. We go, how do you, how do you not see, yes, there are, this is a fallen world, even from the Christian perspective, right? You see, you see the sins of a nation, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's impossible to ignore. But can't you see how special this culture, this country, this, how unique this is? And why would you dismantle that? You know, reform, change, evolve, but don't dismantle, don't destroy. You don't know how to build. It's easy to destroy, just like you said. I, I'm, and it's hard for me to, to ever talk, and particularly on issues this big, without referencing my faith, without referencing God. And so I, I'm gonna just keep talking the way that only way I can talk, I'll let you correct or, or, or jump in. But you know, w when I hear you talk about the lust for power, and, and I try to explain to people like th that political power and power in general has become our religion and it's corrupted our culture, that we had a healthier culture in the past when we were defined by our Judeo and or Christian faith. And, and that doesn't mean everybody, because there were atheists and blah, blah, but we did have a culture that I thought, and still do, it, it benefits non-believers. Judeo-Christian culture benefits non-believers. And it's because w when you think about all the progress and all the things America's overcome, the injustices and why we corrected ourselves, and I think I said this earlier in the week, but I, w I want to repeat it to you, is our culture used to be about men and women making decisions to be on the right side of God. Mm. And again, does it apply to everybody? No, but if you just look at American history, there was this constant pull to be on the right side of God, and that's why we corrected slavery and had a bloody war to correct slavery and people sacrificed their lives to be on the right side of God. Civil rights movement, same thing. If you, uh, voting rights for women, suffrage, all that. It was about, well, we gotta, we gotta be on the right side of God. We've now come to this understanding in the last 10 years where it's all promoted. 
the right side of history. And mm -hmm. I bring that up because you, having lived in these communist countries, realize that the power, whoever's in power, writes history. And so really what they're really, it's not about being on the right side of history, it's being on the right side of whoever is in power at the moment. That ties you to a political ideology and the whims of whoever is in power. And the people that are in power, whether they're right, left, north, south, gay, straight, black, white, whatever, they're fallen and flawed. Those of us that are believers, like God isn't fallen and flawed. His wisdom given to us in the Bible or whatever, it doesn't blow with the wind. It's not flimsy. It's written there and it's like, once you have a set of rules, and, and again, this is where I, you're a thousand percent on point, I don't need to tell you that, but uh, truth is the most important thing. If you give people the truth and a set of rules, people can be successful, and I'll apply it to just something very simple as someone who struggles with their weight. This week, or last week, I ordered two scales Two, because I was like, you know what? I need the truth every day about my weight. I can't That's live great. in denial about it. I don't want to be speculating. I got a, a, a scale in my bedroom. I got a scale in my living room. I got, I, I got to step on a scale every day because I need that truth because it makes me do the right thing. And, and there's such an attack on truth right now in America. That's what's most frightening to me is when when corporate media, whoever is putting out the story like, well, the police are just randomly killing black men and we can go to the data and go, well, that's just not true. You know, about 250 people get killed a year black, about 450 white guys get killed a year. This is a country of 300 and some odd million. There's not a pandemic of police kill. And so Let's don't go off into la-la land and start making rules and start behaving like, oh my God, you know, you're as likely to get shot by the police as you are to die from diabetes or high blood pressure. It's just not true. If we put the facts in front of people, maybe we'd have a fear of donuts and <laughs> the way we're running around being afraid of, of cops right now. And so, I, I just, human beings flourish when truth That's is allowed to, to be spread Absolutely. and discussed and taught, no matter how uncomfortable it is. And it's very, every time I get on the scale, it's very uncomfortable. I close my eyes and I peek and I go, oh, I'm hoping for good news. And luckily I've been getting good results lately, but you gotta give people the truth in order for them to make good decisions and in order for people to flourish. You're absolutely right. And I think, honestly, we, you can't, as I said, you cannot legislate faith. You cannot not legislate holiness, right? But truth matters. And if, if I speak truth to you as a human being or you speak truth to me, you're not trying to impose your opinion about it. You want me to be aligned with truth because it helps me flourish as a human being. You know, one of the 
you know, I've been, I've been, I've had a lot of suffering in my life, as I've, as I said, but I've also created suffering for myself, right? And I've also been endowed with opportunities and talent, for example, right? An education of a certain kind, all kinds of things that go our way. But what happens is you can be blessed in all kinds of ways and have advantages in all kinds of ways, and you can completely destroy yourself if you're not aligned with the truth. One of the things is that I was at the peak of my career in 1995, um, in the summer of 1995. And I was at the very, I number one hit, I was on magazine covers, I was everywhere. And I was completely and clinically depressed internally because of some of the choices that I've made in my life. So what is the truth? And the truth that came to me in that moment is that I'm grateful for the opportunities. I'm grateful for the talent. But I do not know how to live according to truth. I needed somebody to tell me. And that's where I sort of was invited to this church and uh, I met with, with my with who became my mentor, and he just talked me through some, opened the Bible. Okay, what's what are the pain points in your life? And the pain points for me, for example, was marriage. Right, like I have I come from three generations of broken homes, and I would just destroy every relationship I had. And a child out of I had a child out of wedlock. I, the 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 my ex girlfriend walked away, cut me off, and I deserved it because I treated her badly. I wasn't violent or anything, but I was a jerk. And I was suffering, it was so much pain because I was misaligned with how the world works. And the blessing of scripture to me, and the blessing of discipleship with people, apprenticeship uh, with someone, is they could say, oh, this is the truth and this is where you are. Why don't we align you with the truth and see if you flourish? And I did. I've been married for 22 years, I have three wonderful children. I have a, I, I've recalibrated the way I see business, money, generosity, serving the poor, how to interact, how to be successful. All of those things were informed by scripture. And I have flourished as a human being. I'm happier now than I've ever have been in, in, my, in my life before. So when you sort of see a culture where truth is not no longer no longer matters, that's concerning because it will diminish human flourishing. And that's essentially where I'm coming from here. And, you know, going back to Marx is he saw a problem in a wrong way. And he, because of that, he saw a solution also in a wrong way. And then we see now the same exact thing. You see this binary, this versus this. If you're male, you're, you're the problem. If you're female, you're the oppressed. If you're black, if you're white, if you're left or if you're right. And you see this, the same DNA invade uh, the narrative and, and the culture, which is not, I don't think this is the essence of America. Uh, this is definitely not the essence of scripture, right? Um, one of the things that was amazing to me, and I, I want maybe our listeners to look it up, is that there was a guy, I mentioned his name before, his name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a Nobel Prize winner in literature. He spent over a decade in the gulags under communism. And he wrote um, several books, and the, the big one in, in the sense of understanding the reality, and he actually contributed to the fall of the Soviet Union because the West could no longer ignore the evil that was going on. He wrote this book called The Gulag Archipelago. Now, when he immigrated to America, he became instantly the hero, the celebrity, the one who suffered under the evil regime and the evil system and all of that. 
and he's became he became a big star essentially right a, a philosopher in 19 i believe 78 i could be wrong he did the harvard uh, commencement address and in that address he offered a critique of America. And this is something that I think we need to pay attention to is that we need to not understand that this, we need to understand that what we're seeing that maybe concerns us doesn't just happen in an instant. This, is a, this has been sort of creeping into the culture and the narrative for about 50 years. And he called it out in 1978. He could have been doing this address right now. It would have been right on. And here's what he said. I'm going to see like this. this it's, it's a long speech and everything. It's amazing. But he says this, that America, all the gains that America had up to that point are being undermined from his perspective because of the disconnection in culture of us from God, perceiving ourselves as separate from God. And he uses a term, he says, it's anthropocentric culture and removes God and will lead to decline and loss of gains. That was his critique. It's a longer speech, but it's anthropocentric, meaning we are, the, we are at the center of our universe. Human beings see truth, interpret the truth, can act and fix things, and we are our own gods. And he says, because of this anthropocentric change in culture in America, this will lead to decline and loss of gains. He said that in 19, I believe, 78 at Harvard. And he could have been saying it right now. Now, here's what happened, which actually confirms that he was right, is that he was a celebrity before that. And after he made that speech that was famous, you can find it on YouTube, um, he was immediately declared persona, sort of perceived persona non grata. He doesn't get us. He's from there. He doesn't understand the, the, how special we are. That critique is wrong. And he was right. And this is sort of circles back to this idea that you and I are discussing of, of truth. And truth is truth. And truth leads to human flourishing. And if we become arrogant as a culture, which I think slowly has, has happened, we become anthropocentric. We are at the center of the universe. Guess what? We are not at the center of the universe. We're not lords. We're not kings. We're not gods. And it, that's idolatry. And idolatry always leads to decline, paralysis, destruction, mediocrity. And it just, it just, it's just true. So my hope is that through conversations like this you and I are having, we're not just forcing people to believe things they don't want to believe, but we just appeal to truth and how that might benefit the person listening. I, I want to uh, follow up on your point to see if, if I heard you, understood you correctly, and whether my point of view is consistent with what you just expressed, because I certainly think idolatry is our biggest sin, and, and I certainly think that I'm looking at a culture uh, mm -hmm. and people in power who believe that they are God, and I, 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 part of me, and I don't even want to send us down this path, but I am going to say it because it's what I think in the moment. Uh, it, it's just like the whole climate change deal, like that we're, we're so godlike that we can destroy what God built. And I have a hard time believing that we can destroy what God built, but maybe I'll be mm -hmm. proven wrong. But, but, but more important than that is my belief, and I try to explain to people, 
that I, I don't see myself as God. I see myself as very flawed. And, and I see people that take on this God-like quality is why they're spending so much time trying to fix others. It, mm. Again, if I'm God, of course, you know, I'm very concerned about what's going on with Christian. And Christian, let me micromanage you and tell you all the mistakes you're making. I'm God. Whereas I try to tell people, it's like, whoo, Jason Whitlock is a full-time job. Trying to fix me and trying to get me right with God. Whoo, boy, if I just knock that out of the park, guess what's going to happen to the rest of the world if I fix me? And so that's what I think Christianity and faith is actually about, is identifying that the struggle is right here. And, and I look at a world where everybody else is looking at the struggles over there. It's white guys. They're the struggle. And if I could just fix them or if, if uh, you know what, if I ever make X amount of dollars, that's when I'm going to be really happy. Now, I know I'm happy right now, but boy, it's all these external forces that are actually in control of our happiness and success. And, and to me, my understanding of faith is, no, right? It, it, win this battle and you've won the war. You're so right. You're so right. And that's, that's sort of, that's what's hard to explain, right? It's that evil the boundary be between good and evil lays right here inside of me. And if you just understand that, you will see the whole world, all of the interactions, society, politics, relationships, romance, economics even, very, very, very differently. Now, if you just make that one little switch and say evil is outside of me and take it one step further, it's a group of people that are so diverse, like you, how can you group people like that, you know, and expect some, some, something good to happen from it, then your whole worldview changes, right? So if evil is outside of me, then it's, and I can assign blame to this, right? Um, it informs the way I act, how I see the solution, how I invest my money, my time, my passion, my talents to, to, to fix evil. Uh, and the problem with that is that it's just not true. It's just not true. Evil, that's why the Bible is so valuable, right? It's 2,000, just like you said. This is, this, the Bible's been around for 2,000 years. If you just dig deeply enough and allow yourself to just be aware of the beauty of it and the timelessness of it, right? All the things that we talk about in current society are not new things. They're, they're all eternal, timeless parts of the human condition. How do we relate to each other? How do we deal with wealth? How do we deal with power? How do we love? What do we do? Who are we? All of those things have been answered over and over and over again and discussed over and over and over again by different people. And the one document I really think, the one holy scripture that has formed a civilization, which is Western civilization, with the, those answers is the Bible. The Bible is the cornerstone of Western civilizations. There's, uh, of Western civilization, there's Greece, there's Jerusalem, right? And there's Rome, there's dimensions of that in Western civilization. But I think the moral 
foundation is, as you said, Judeo-Christian. And we ignore that to our detriment, in my mind. Christian, one of the things that when we had dinner a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I've, I've locked in skepticism and cynicism and just like, oh my God, I don't think we're ever going to recover. It's never going to be. You are more optimistic. And I would like for you, you know, to tell the audience why you have a more optimistic outlook on America and, and perhaps we can recover from uh, our idolatry. I'm, um, yes, I am cautiously optimistic. And I think part of it is just experiential, you know. Um, you don't really, you, it's hard for you to, to assign value to something if you don't have something that you can contrast with, not just intellectually, but experientially. So that's why I think most of us who are immigrants, uh, grateful immigrants in, in, in America, we, we see it with, we just see, see the American culture and the benefits of it. We see the sin, obviously, but we also see the remarkable qualities of, of, of American culture in richer colors. That's probably the best way to express it, right? And, and we appreciate it and we're grateful. And it really bothers us where, where people just dismantle that so easily verbally. And, and uh, it really does. I mean, I, I have even conversations about that with my American uh, daughters, right? They, they were born overseas, but they grew up in, in American. And sometimes they say something like sweeping statements about America that are sort of disparaging. And I, it really actually emotionally impacts me. And I go, please don't say that. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. So we have, the, even in our family, we have this sort of back and forth about it. Uh, but the reason I'm optimistic, as, as you said, is that I really believe, and, and this is not just because of the contrast of experiences of where I've lived in three different continents, um, six different countries, and I see what I see here. But really, I think I really try to root it in truth. And here's the truth that I think is going to give us a chance in the United States to recover and to flourish again. Um, it's that we have antibodies against tyranny. We have antibodies against command and control ways of seeing things. Um, more than many other places, I would probably say more than most places in the world. This, because of, of how this whole thing came together through God's providence in my mind, is that people who, who sort of laid the cultural foundation, it's the cultural DNA. It's not top down, it's not sort of this, it's, it's, it's the texture of how people see the world, is we believe we have the ability to shape our future more than the state has the ability to shape our future. So I think most Americans don't think of the state as the solution or a command and control benevolent whatever president or leader as the solution most of us i think in america and that's what i love about this country think that we are the solution that we can make our future and that we can make decisions and even if we come from humble beginnings like you came from humble beginnings i came from humble beginnings i believe and i think i inherited that through just popular culture although i was overseas i really believe that look i i can have i can start my journey in a refugee camp but I can reach the stars. And no state will do that for me or prevent me from doing that. So I really believe in this 
in this country, this is there's antibodies to the to the disease, and I think those antibodies give us a chance um, of overcoming, of becoming healthy, culturally, right, worldwide view. Um, that's that's my opinion. I I want to push back just a little bit, or or try to cleverly. I like Please the do. use of the word antibodies. Uh, and, and what you're really talking about is natural immunity. Yes. And uh, natural immunity should help us. But when they give you a vaccine and force you to wear a mask and, and, and you damage your natural immunity and what I think they've done to damage our natural immunity, the, the vaccine is this umbrella that they throw over everything, racism. Race, they, every conversation is framed in racism. Every issue, every dispute is racism, 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 racism. And that's how we arrived today and where we've been this week with a 17-year-old white child uh, shot three white kids or white young men during a riot and a protest, and somehow we can't see that this, hey, this isn't a dispute along racial lines. This is for white people because they've given us this vaccine of racism and everything's wrapped in this racism package and our natural immunity goes off and we're having a stupid conversation about racism when it's a really a conversation about self-defense and whether or not these people should have been trying to disarm this young man who was carrying a gun legally uh, in a dangerous situation, riots and stuff going on in Kenosha. And so I, I, I agree with you. I think there is natural immunity, but I, I know so many people whose natural immunity, natural common sense should be kicking in and going, oh my God, what are we doing? Free speech is under attack. Christianity, our faith, is under attack. This should be having us panicked. But again, they took abortion and they wrapped it in a racial issue. And, and, and like, oh, my God, it's going to hurt black women and all this. Stuff. Everything LGBT, it's all everything's race. And I'm looking at us throw common sense and faith and everything out the window. And it's like, we have no antibodies. We don't know what common sense, we can't recognize the truth anymore. That's why I'm a bit more cynical than you. And, and you know, you, you, I'm sure you know the minister, Vody uh, Bauckham. He, he, I had him on the, on the show uh, maybe a month or so ago two months ago, and, and he made a point to me about America that kind of blew my mind. He was like, hey man, if you understand the history of Christianity, its universe moves around the globe. And yes, it rested here as ground zero in America for a long time, but Christianity's not gonna go anywhere. It's, it's center. It's episode may just move to another part of the globe and may just leave America and we'll we'll be sitting around telling stories or some people 
to their grandkids or whatever. <laughs> yeah, we used to be free here. We used to be the envy of the world. Uh, but we walked away from God and now we're all suffering the consequences. How do you like this little uh, prison cell they got us living in? You, you comfortable here? <laughs> you, you might be right, you know, uh, and I am cautiously optimistic, but you know, just like in, in, even the, with the example with antibodies and, and a virus, the, the antibodies don't always win, right? So, um, but I think you're absolutely right. There's, this, is, this, is, this is pretty serious. And even about Christianity, I think you're absolutely right. We're not the, cent we're not the chosen nation. We just happen to have a, a through God's, you know, grace, we happen to have a, a combination of, of things that came together. And a lot of the culture in, in, the, in the country has been shaped by the Christian worldview, which is remarkable. And, and, and because it leads, not, again, not because one of a religious sort of thing, it's the truth and embracing of truth and a humility before truth leads to human flourishing. Uh, but you're absolutely right. The shift of the f of the Christian faith globally has already shifted to the global South, right? And in China and Southeast Asia, there, in Iran, uh, underground churches in Iran have I, I've heard a million people in the underground churches in Iran. African nations are sending missionaries to the United States. Um, not the other way around, not just the other way around. It's remarkable, right? Uh, it, and it's it's humbling and it's beautiful because it's, once again, we're not, uh, if we start stop thinking anthropocentrically that we are the center of the universe, whatever you are, the person or nation or American, and start seeing God-centric, you can go, look, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and if we're not listening, he'll shift the focus somewhere else because he is God and we're not, right? Uh, Chris and I will end on this note. Tell us about your church in Austin. Uh, you know, it's called The Tribe, a unique name. I don't think I've ever, I've heard that. How did you come up with that name? And just what, what kind of work? I mean, you got, man, you guys are in Austin. What, what, there were no churches available in San Francisco, so you just wanted to be in <laughs> you wanted You wanted the hard work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know what, thank you for asking. Uh, yeah, we planted this church, uh, Deb and I, my wife and I, and we brought our kids uh, about eight years ago, nine years ago, actually, we planted eight years ago. And um, if you can find it at atxtribe.org, uh, atxtribe.org. And we came to Austin because of a couple of things. One is, it was just a really fun place uh, to combine just starting a community, and we wanted to start something authentic. We wanted to start a church that never start, goes becomes big. So as we grew, we started sending uh, people out to plant other churches. So we planted another church in the east side of Austin, and we're smaller again. And the, the idea is that we have a congregation where there's a culture of community where people love each other, truly, truly love each other. So it's not an institutional kind of Christianity. It's first century Christianity. That's what we aspire for. Um, and the other reason I came is because I. I loved uh, life creativity, I love uh, music, and I had an entertainment company at the time in Los Angeles. I moved from LA, and I moved with the company, and through a series of events, I ended up starting a new company called Third Drive, thirddrive.co, if you want to look it up. And we do, and it's, it's this hub of both creativity 
and technology and startups. So it is, Austin is a unique place that way. I mean, you probably heard that uh, Elon Musk recently moved the headquarters for Tesla here. There's a reason for that. There's a lot of te- historically, there's a lot of technological advances and startup environments are amazing. Um, so that's sort of the backstory here is that we we start ended up starting a church and starting a company, a new company, all at the same time. And we sort of treat it as a base, and we travel a lot. We go to Russia, we go to Africa, we travel around the country and do stuff. Uh, but that's the backstory. Christian, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you know, I hope to do it again. Maybe next time you come to Nashville, we'll have yeah, you here in studio. Yeah, we'd love to. And, uh, and you know, I'll, I'll take us out. You know, Bobby uh, had us at his house. I'll take us to a restaurant and... Uh, uh, <laughs> I try. Bobby fed me pizza. I don't need pizza right now. Bobby, Bobby, I, I got to tell Bobby about my scale, the two scales I got at home. But uh, man, thank you so much. I, I'm, I'm hoping my audience eats this up. Uh, and even if it just changes one person's mind, uh, we've, done a, we've done a great job and you've done me a great service. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jason, for having me, and and thank you for just the, your friendship. And the the more I listen to you, I really appreciate how thoughtful, how intelligent you are, how you make an argument that is not forced upon upon anybody. It's just it's just look. Let's look at the truth and let's look at what leads to human flourishing. And I love that spirit about you. Thank you, Christian. All right, let me tell you guys about my good friends at Good Ranchers. For better than organic chicken, see our friends at Good Ranchers. For beef that's been grass-fed and grain-finished, see our friends at Good Ranchers. Deliver a great meal to everyone in your family this holiday season, see our friends at Good Ranchers. Only through Good Ranchers can you experience the best food brought to your home from farms right here in America, 100% American, 100% of the time. Your local grocery store can't compete with the quality of food you'll get and Our online competitors can't beat our prices. So this holiday season, you need to have Good Ranchers on your table. Go to GoodRanchers.com to buy it now. Subscribe today and save 20% off on each box of mouthwatering meats. Subscribing brings the cost down to less than $5 per meal. That's $20 off and free express shipping at GoodRanchers.com slash fearless. Know where your meat comes from with GoodRanchers.com. Support good ranchers because they support me, they support you, they support the kind of conversation Christian Ray and I just had. Good ranchers, fearless soldiers, those of you in the fearless army, you gotta eat our food and support our sponsors. Also, hit that subscribe and like button. Man, I gotta tell you something. That's one of my favorite conversations of all time. And I hope that uh, you all found it edifying. I can't wait it. To, I can't wait to send it to my family and friends. Uh, I, I, I just, I hope people recognize the time we're living in and what's going on uh, in this country. And and Christian, his life experience, his worldview all the things he's seen across this globe. And, and for someone like that to be concerned about, hey man, America, you're giving up freedoms, you're giving up the culture and the environment that made this country great. Are you sure you wanna do this? And for him to say, you know what? 
And this has been going on for 50 years. It's, it's not new. It's been going on for 60 years. We've been headed down this path. Uh, this was one of my favorite conversations. I don't want to dirty it up with anything else. And so uh, that's going to be it and all for us today. We're going to play some tomorrow. Get us out of here, and we'll see you tomorrow. Time feeling all kinds of free. These words are our religion, all regrets and all the